Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm too loud now. <laughs> I'm so glad that's not the only one that I'm not the only one that does that. <laughs> yeah. uh, what a week, huh? It's been a week. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Clink. So we're back with the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Um, Katie Tipton and myself, Chris Sims, are back in the Airstream studio, and we have Cassie Rippy here with us. Um, Cassie, you were on the Go Dig a Hole podcast when uh, I first moved to Oregon about three years ago. And on that episode, um, I went back and listened to it recently because I re-released it as, as an archive, and um, it was really funny to hear myself three years ago and being like what's a tippo do and so you're you're the tippo with the coquil tribe and um you know in the years since then you know I've, I've been keeping up with your work and and i've learned a lot through you and i've met other tippos and and i've learned you know what what tippos do so anybody who wants to know what a tribal historic preservation officer does should go back and check out um i think that was episode 19 with cassie rippy and um, I don't even know what episode number we're on now. It's, it doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, so uh, today I wanted to talk a little bit about um, TCPs. Yeah. Uh, and so kind of to to back it up, um, like uh, for anybody who doesn't know what a TCP is, like, you know, you've worked back east as, as I have. And, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show either aren't archaeologists or might be um, students who are still, you know, checking it out, trying to feel out the the whole archaeology thing, or early career folks uh, who might not have encountered um, traditional cultural properties uh, or any sort of, you know, tribal involvement. So yeah. um, I know you've been really heavily involved in TCPs lately. So if, if there's anything you're at liberty to discuss <laughs> about, you know, kind of like starting from kind of like a a uh, 40,000 foot view, like what is a TCP on a general level to like, you know, how does it impact, you know, the way people, you know, live with their culture, their, uh, you know, private property and stuff like that? Sure. So, you know, I'll, I'll preface that with, um, you know, I, I also recently re-listened to that podcast and I just think, oh gosh, there's so much more I should have said and more I could have <laughs> said. And, you know, and yeah, I, I've, I've been in this position now for five years um, and I am, my position has changed a little bit over that time. Um, so I'm the TIPO, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. And for those that haven't listened to the podcast before, um, the short version is um, TIPOs are the um, basically takeover SHPO functions, State Historic Preservation Officer functions on tribal lands. Um, I'm also the tribal archaeologist, um, culture and heritage program manager. Um, living culture is is under my aegis as well. So we do a whole lot of things. We we wear a lot of hats, right? Mm -hmm. um, so as TIPO, one of the things that I'm charged with is protecting cultural resources, sacred places, um, and perpetuating the active culture, um, both on tribal lands and off of tribal lands. Um, the Coquel in particular were not um, a treaty tribe. The Coquel were not um, a reservation tribe in the traditional sense. So our tribal lands are in part trust lands. We call them reservation. Our constitution puts them as reservation. Um, but they're not reservation in the traditional sense is where you have this contiguous land base. So we have 
our tribal lands are checkerboarded across our service area and our ancestral territory. Um, so we have our tribal trust reservation lands and we have fee lands, which are owned basically fee simple, just like any other private landowner. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the rest of our many, many, many uh, million acres of, of tribal ancestral territory are um, either in the hands of private landowners or the federal government or some other public <clears throat> land. Um, so the the section of, of our ancestral land and our area of interest that we actually have in ownership is very small, which means that it can be a challenge to find and protect them. Um, a lot of people tend to think, well, there's no artifacts there, so it's not not sacred or it's not important, um, or well, it's been destroyed, so it's not worth protecting anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a it's, it's a hard challenge to to overcome that. Um, one of the TCPs that we have talked about, um, a TCP, I guess I should back up there again. <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> back up. So a TCP is a traditional cultural property. A TCP is a place of religious or cultural significance to a community. And it's important to know that TCPs are not actually restricted to tribal significance. Anybody could have a TCP. Um, the huh. Kind of one of the cutoffs is that it, the the thing that ascribes significance to that place can't have started in the last 50 years okay. so it's that's why it's traditional right air quotes traditional gotcha. um but it's it's not restricted to to tribal communities um they're not easy to pass um most TCPs are not listed on the Federal Register for one reason or another um, and they're not required to be on the register to be a TCP or to be significant, just like archaeological sites, right? Archaeological sites, there's couldn't even begin to guess how many there are out there, but maybe 0.001% are on the federal register. Okay. Um, that's just a <laughs> throw a number out there. <laughs> well, fun um, fact. Yeah. So the federal register, the National Register for Historic Places, was created as really kind of an honorarium to say this place is important. And it is written into um, our federal guidelines for protection. Um, so the, a lot of the federal agencies, federal undertakings under Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, the codes have changed. Did you know? It's 306108 now. Ooh, ah. <laughs> I mean, I have um, a book in my bag right now. If you want to like yeah, make sure that number, no. <laughs> yeah, they've changed all the codes and everything, so it's not actually Section 106 anymore. It's now 306108. Um, so that's yeah, really good to know. To be more complicated. Yeah, yeah. I, take some time to review the changes to the National Register <laughs> stuff. Um, but so still call it Section 106, right? But under Section 106, um, a historic property, if it is eligible or listed on the National Register, it is deemed significant enough to deserve protections, mitigation, avoidance for an undertaking. Um, so that's the reason that a lot of um, places get listed is to, to give them protection. Um, there are other ways to go ab- about protection, and a lot of tribes, because of the sensitive nature of TCPs, tend to go that route rather than listing on the National Register. Because once you list something on the National Register, you have to publish all this information about it and start listing, saying what makes it significant, where is it, why is it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
TCPs in particular for tribes, those things tend to be sacred places. They tend to be ceremonial sites or creation sites or um, gathering locations that we don't want to disclose or um, even archaeological sites, which the locations are already protected for. But yeah. the more you put out there, the more it's out there. Gotcha. So with uh, National Register uh, property, um, all of that information is publicly available, whereas a TCP, you can protect things like um, tribal sovereignty and, you know, maybe the, the more sensitive natures of, of, you know, what might have been going on there or is currently going on there, right? Right. And so TCP nominations that have been put out recently for consideration on the National Register, um, they'll be heavily redacted. Mm-hmm. They'll redact names. They'll redact place locations. Um one that I reviewed recently um, actually reviewed or um, redacted uh, what the place actually was. So they redacted burial site. They redacted archaeological site. They just said, this place is here. And so it's only the people that get to review the unredacted version really know that information. And so who gets to review the unredacted versions of a TCP? That is, uh, at least in the state of Oregon, been a question. (laughs) So um, the way that it's worked in Oregon so far is that um, first the reviewers, you know, are reviewing it or the the writers are reviewing it and choosing what gets redacted. Mm -hmm. Um, So whoever they have internally, it may be um, the council, it may be um, contractors, it may be staff, it may be tribal members. Um, just whoever's putting that document together. Um, then when it's submitted, they have to fill out, whoever's submitting this TCP will have to fill out a National Register nomination form, a 1099, I think. That form gets completed with all of the information about the TCP in it, and it gets submitted to SHPO. The State Historic Preservation Office, usually the... Um, National Register staff will review that. And then they'll probably have legal staff, and I imagine they have several staff reviewing this, and especially when you have a document that's two, three hundred pages of dense (laughs) ethnographic history or site documentation or something like that. So you have people at the SHPO reviewing this document. Um, Once SHPO has reviewed it and determined that the application is complete, then they pass it on to the S-A-H-C, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, State Advisory Com- Heritage Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the public hearings are held, and then they the commission holds a meeting where they have an opportunity for the, for the um, community to weigh in um, for testimony from the applicants um, and anybody that has an opinion on it. And then they decide at that meeting if it needs to go back for revision or if it should be passed on to the keeper. And so all of the committee commission members review the unredacted copy. Meanwhile, in between uh, when the committee commission reviews it and before, so basically from when it's submitted to when the commission reviews it, there's a period where the public gets to review the redacted copy. Um, so if the commission approves it, it goes on to the keeper, and then the keeper gets to review it and make a determination or not. Um, now it gets tricky where uh, 
if it's a, most TCPs that I'm familiar with are on federal lands or on one or two pieces of property. Um, there are several TCPs, however, that cross multiple property owners, um, private, um, city, state, federal. And so the more property owners that you get involved, the more complicated it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are on federal lands, the federal land managing agency also is supposed to review the application and make a determination of eligibility as part of the submission to the keeper. Um, whether or not that federal land managing agency gets a copy of the unredacted document or not will depend on the sub, who submitted it and uh-huh. the SHPO. Okay. Oh, interesting. And is if it's a federal property, do they have? Can they at any point be in the process of helping compile those documents? Does that a, ever happen? In a perfect or, world. Okay. Yeah, I don't know so, where they possibly come in or get triggered or is there anything? That, that depends it... on who's developing the document. Okay. So we've been working on our own TCP that we have not, haven't put forward to the register yet. We're not sure if we're going to. Right now, if we did, it would just, the purpose would be to say it's here and we want it acknowledged. Um, we can do that without national register nomination. Um, So we're not sure how far forward we're going to go with it. But um, we have a TCP that we're working on um, in our ancestral territory, and it covers um, some private property and um, public property. And we've done our initial kind of information gathering saying, what, what creates what are the contributing elements? Who? What's what's so important about this place that mm-hmm. that um, makes it something that we want to elevate beyond the 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 site status? And um, so our next step, if we choose to move forward um, with calling it officially a TCP or nominating it or anything like that, um, would be to meet with the local agencies and say, is there any other information that you have? Is there something that maybe you might find you know, interesting or contributing factor that you might like to include? Do you have any concerns about that? Um, ideally, probably we would also want to do that for the, the local landowners. Um, it just depends on, on um, who, the, who the original applicant is and how much how much they want to share, how much they want to say this is this is ours, and as long as we don't need, or as long as nobody objects, we can go forward, right? Mm-hmm. So um, National Register nominations for the TCP used to be that you had, um, if 50%, I think, or fewer um, ob- did not object, you could pass. If 51 or more objected to the to the listing, you can't get listed. There is now uh, some new proposed changes to the National Register rules, which one of the changes is going to be that um, someone who owns a larger amount of land than others can object just on land ownership rather than 50% people. Huh. Oh, so it's almost like a majority of like, I own more pe- property, so they right. get a larger voice in right. sense? Okay. I have a number of objections to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And so the, the 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 comment period closed on that pretty quickly. 
um, and they are reviewing. I don't know where those rule changes are going to come out, um, but there's there's some potential rule changes to the National Register um, that will change how any National Register nomination gets approved or delisted. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Yeah, delisted is interesting. Mm -hmm. Huh. So you could have wealthy landowners um, essentially like removing, you know, delisting so that they can remove protections from sites on their land. So uh, wealthy land, like landowners, if, if somebody owned a larger piece of land, they couldn't by, by themselves delist. Um, they could object to listing, though, okay. um, and prevent and possibly prevent it from being listed. Um, the delisting part comes in federal landowner, fe federal land managers could oh, okay. potentially delist. Um, there's some, you know, questions as to, well, it's even if it's delisted, it's still eligible, <clears throat> right? So in a perfect world, <laughs> listing is listing is supposed to be an honorarium, yeah, right? And eligibility is what everybody uses as the criteria for protection. We all know this isn't a perfect world, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, and that that just kind of gets down to where this is a it's a tricky kind of confusing place. Yeah. So, and you know. Um, even still right now, though, landowners can still object. Um, land managing agencies can still object. And if you reach that, that threshold, and I, I think it's 50%, um, if you reach that threshold, you're not eligible for listing. But uh, you wouldn't be able to list, but you would not maybe still be eligible. Hmm. So there's some kind of tricky, confusing rules around National Register listing. We'll let that uh, moped go by. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dramatic Way louder pause. than I thought it would be. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, in in terms of uh, the way either kind of either uh, national register listing or a TCP happens, like let's say there's a, a large area that encompasses some private property, and um, often you hear land or you know private property owners object to listings or even archaeological investigations on mm -hmm. private property because they think um you know i'm not going to be able to use my property the way i want to anymore i'm not going to be able to you know make improvements to the land or yeah. build on it stuff like that like uh how do you handle you know talking to you know, panicked or concerned members of the public when they bring these kinds of uh, often misinformed objections? Usually with grace and patience. <laughs> In a perfect I do, <laughs> I do my best. Yeah. Um, so we get a lot of those questions, especially <clears throat> since the uh, we have TCPs are a hot button topic in Coos County where we live right now. Yeah. Um, because of the, the one that's gone through recently. And so I get a lot of questions and, you know, we have our own. Um, Landowners call me and say, well, what does this mean for my property? Well, mm -hmm. you know, so the first question is, well, let's actually look at the boundaries and see is your is your property actually within the boundaries? Um, so, you know, kind of narrow some of that out first. And then we say, OK, well, let's say you are in the in the boundaries. Um, what are the contributing factors to that TCP listing? There are contributing factors and there are non-contributing factors. And those all have to be listed out clearly in your TCP application. And so um, 
A non-contributing factor could be um, Mr. Smith's chain link fence. It does not have any effect on the TCP. Um, a contributing factor might be the um, archaeological site that's in his backyard. Mm-hmm. But archaeological sites are protected on their own under state and federal law, depending on what the project is. But there are are legal protections for archaeological sites, whether the place is a TCP or not. So we, we talk him through then, these are what, what you would be required to do for this archaeological site. Pretend there's no C- TCP here for a sec. Let's talk about this site. Uh-huh. And then, let's say he doesn't have a site on his property. He just has... Um, you know, his house and uh, we don't see any contributing factors actually on his property, but he's maybe within the boundaries of the TCP because there's multiple contributing factors over a large distance. Um, he might come to me and say, well, I'm in the TCP boundary. That Why can't I paint my fence without or my or my house without tribal consultation? And so our answer is, well, that's not the intent. Um, if you look at the contributing factors, um, the contributing factors are an archaeological site or a geological feature, or um, this historic building that's documented specifically. Mm -hmm. And your house, in in the non-contributing factors, it lists the subdivisions, um, the the structures within a subdivision. So those would be non-contributing factors, which means that you do not have to go through tribal consultation or even shippo consultation necessarily to paint your house. But remember, you do have an archaeological site in your backyard, so either way, you still need to go through SHPO approval if you want to, say, install a garage. But that's not necessarily about the TCP. That's about this thing that would be protected either way. Yeah. And so you just have to walk them through what those contributing and non-contributing factors are. Um, And it also helps to let the folks know that you are their partner and you are also in the community and you understand that it's it's a confusing process and hey i'm here to answer questions any day yeah call me here's my email address even if you think if it's a ridiculous question there are no stupid questions call me yeah and so it helps to to remind them that you are also a community member and just kind of create some rapport yeah well it sounds like also like there gets that mis- miscommunication of like it's this big blanket of just you cannot do anything. But once you start kind of pulling it apart a little yeah. bit and telling them the pieces, people kind of start yeah. to understand or can maybe wrap around it a little more. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> and again, perfect world yeah. optimism. But yeah, that just sounds like listing out those components really help. Yeah. Community out- outreach and education is really key when you're talking about um, cultural resources. People just... They don't understand. Um, they're they're kind of blanketed with an air of mystery already because of the way that we treat them. And so the more um, candid that we can be about what the effects are going to be, even without talking about the resource, can usually put people at ease. Nice. Um, so Cassie, you also are involved in education mm-hmm. and outreach and advocacy. Yep. And uh, I put a call out before we recorded this episode for um, some questions. And as archaeologists, we get some interesting questions. Um, But uh, Tom Thompson wrote in on Twitter and uh, asked if um, 
we could talk about anything going on with making public visitor in-field uh, visits. Um, do you ever have, you know, like public days where you're, you know, maybe doing an archaeology project or invite the public in to talk about archaeology? So um, as the tribal archaeologist, I do occasionally do archaeological excavations of my own. Um, they're maybe once a year and they're usually in a salvage position where mm -hmm. it's someone put in a house footprint and oh there's there's a site there and it has to be dealt with right now um in an effort to um kind of be the, that good neighbor will help them with the the archaeology um but it's usually a rushed situation and we don't really have an opportunity to do that kind of outreach um, or it the for whatever reason that resources in danger and it has to be addressed right away um, most of the archaeology that happens in our area is done by contractors including um, university professors we do have a field school that we partner with the university of oregon and cal state san bernardino um, as part of our field school and um agreements that we have with most archaeologists, archaeological firms, there is a requirement um, as a mitigative effort that they have to do some sort of education or outreach. And that's usually not in the field because they're usually out there to do the project and get it done. Um, there may be opportunities where it's appropriate. Field schools are usually good ones. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to when ninety percent of the work that we do is salvage to yeah. to take that time. Yeah. Um, so we, but you know, again, the the tribe archaeology is consumptive, and so data recovery is not mitigation. Right. So we require some sort of of mitigation that brings in some sort of education and outreach component. Um, and so that is how we tend to bring in that kind of public engagement, whether it's um, a limited public to the area or otherwise. Um, that's really kind of our best opportunity to do that. I do do public talks in the area in the summertime. Nice. But uh, He also asked, uh, Tom asked kind of a, a funner question. Uh, and I think we've probably all encountered this. <laughs> what are some of the kinds of questions you usually get asked when folks see you out doing archaeology? He says, the gold question seems mm -hmm. to invariably come up regardless of geography. <laughs> that is, ac gold. is pretty accurate. Yeah. Just about every time I'm out in the field is, you digging for gold? Yeah. Like, no, no, I'm not. Um, I worked at Fort Knox for five years. <laughs> yeah. And oh my God. That's the worst. <laughs> yeah. There were so many. It, was, it wasn't It was really the public, you know, on a restricted military base, but, you know, you'd have like base staff drive by and I'm, you know, like stumbling over briars as I'm leaving the woods and stuff to get out to the road and hike back to a, my truck. <laughs> and every single time somebody would stop and go like, what do you do with all the gold you find? I'm like, uh, <laughs> leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I, yeah, I, I get the gold question on probably every project. Um, we get the, why do you have to be digging here? You know, uh -huh. what's, why are you here? Why are you on my property or why are you on their property? Um, we often, um, <laughs> because I, you know, my, I always introduce myself. I'm Cassie. I'm with the tribe. There are tribes here. 
<laughs> so then we take that opportunity to do some education. I say, you, my crew, keep working. Let me talk to some folks and do some some better outreach. Yes, in fact, the tribes are alive, and are your neighbors. Yeah. Um. So that's always a hard one. Um. And then, uh, you know, well, where does this stuff go when when it's done? Um. More often than not, though, honestly, I I don't get questions. I get oh, well, you're digging in the wrong place. Let me show you the better spot. And so then it's an opportunity for engagement with the community and outreach for both site protection and let's document another site if you have one. So um, we, we get a lot of that. Nice. What about you, Katie? Oh, questions? Yeah. Well, recently uh, I've been having to like stake off for mitigation and projects going mm-hmm. through and staking off areas and people think I'm like hunting vampires because they see me carrying the stakes. <laughs> That's a fun one. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, just two vampires today. Don't worry. Uh, I got them. Easy day. Yeah, that's fine. People avoid you in the elevator and stuff when you're like carrying yeah. the stuff up. So that's been the most recent one, but it's always the gold, the dinosaurs. You, you'll find better stuff over that way you're digging in the wrong place yeah mm-hmm. like, I, I i can't right now or like when you're a field tech mm-hmm. at times you yeah. like you're stuck in the area you are in and you're like that's awesome but i'm here so yeah i have to finish my transect uh not leaving my transect right now yeah, yeah. I am, i'm very committed right now to finding nothing because it's obviously over there but right we'll do it <laughs> it is science this is a sampling strategy yeah. so i yep. keep doing my sampling strategy even if it finds nothing yeah we're testing the null hypothesis here yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that came up with their field school recently and so you know we couldn't they couldn't go off on their own and go look at this thing so i recommended to them i said <clears throat> write it in your field notes Ooh. that way there's record and then somebody can go back and you can make a recommendation to go look at this or do this later so that's always a good way to say hey can i get your name can you tell me a little bit so yeah yeah that's cool how you turn uh questions like that that could often be you know just annoying or disruptive uh into teachable moments it's really important that um people feel that you are out there to work with them and not against them um i've i've when I first started here, um, there was some hostility in certain parts of the community just because I'm an archaeologist. Um, and so, you know, I, it's community building has to be a huge part of your job. You can't do your job if you don't have permission to go on their property. Yeah. And, and more times than not, the people that are out here know more than you do. So community building is important. Yeah. I, f- I feel like that's probably the case everywhere is that, you know, People who have been in an area long enough know the area way better than a visiting archaeologist. Mm-hmm. I'm just nodding my head. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. you've encountered that a lot, Katie, with uh, your research. Yeah. And that people tend to know more than I do or, you know, it's like <clears throat> everyone has a depth of knowledge that you want to glean from. And sometimes it's so hard to kind of get that out. Or just to learn more from people so it's good to yeah we're not the only ones <laughs> running into it yeah yeah it sounds like you know both of you are dealing with uh navigating a really delicate trust relationship with uh you know private landowners and members of the community yeah yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're trying does tom have any more questions um 
he did follow up. Let me check the Twitters. I haven't been looking at my phone much of today. Good. Disconnect. Get yeah. away from technology. Be <laughs> no one with something. Yeah. <laughs> be, be one with uh, all of the meetings. I've yes. Be present. Um, okay. So uh, Tom says, one thing I realized about TCPs is not to assume that all deal with archaeological sites or that all mm -hmm. have discrete boundaries or that all... In North America, involved Native American affiliation, and that's interesting. You you mentioned that, uh, you know, right as you started talking about TCPs, is yeah. it's not all Native American. It could just be anything older than fifty years. So correct. What are some examples of? I I'm struggling to think of anything uh, that's not Native American that's older than fifty years that could be a TCP that is not. NRHP. Sure. So there are some, there was a large Chinese community that came through here um, okay. in the 1800s, early 1900s doing work. So there are some Chinese TCPs that are being worked on in here. Um, I'll defer to the folks that work on those to talk about what those are because it's not in my wheelhouse. Uh -huh. um, one example that came up today in our training, I was actually at a TCP training today put on by the National Preservation Institute. Cool. Um, and so one of the examples that they gave today would uh, was Stilttown, Florida. Um, it was not successfully listed on the register, I guess, but it was attempted to be put through as a as a TCP for a, a local community in in Florida. Um, Do you know what some of the criteria that they were trying to? I don't know. like with the ties. Okay. My so. guess would be that it has to do with Criterion C. The unique characteristics oh. kind of thing oh, yeah. interesting yeah yeah i'm not sure you mentioned earlier that um a very very small amount of uh localities that are suggested for um significance to the nrhp or to tcps a very very small amount of those actually make it through and get listed what are some of the reasons why it's so difficult to get it through so Oregon currently does not have any TCPs listed on the National Register. Surprise. Um, we have lots of TCPs, dozens, in just my territory alone. Um, but so part of it is um, the, the whole need to share. When you have to, to disclose information, you're losing um, your control over it. You're, you're giving up sovereignty. Um, there's also just the, the bureaucratic nonsense that goes into an NRHP eligibility nomination. Mm. It's a lot of paperwork and um, it's time consuming. Uh, there have been several TCPs applied for to the state of Oregon. Um, the one most recently in Coos County was the first to make it as far as it did. Um, and it's it's um, on the SHPO database now. Um, but it they're just complicated complicated processes and tcps are not well understood by the reviewers um so yeah it's just not easy and i to an, another point to um tom's question is tcps by law do actually have a discrete have to have a designated boundary okay you're in it or you're not and so that's part of the other challenge with these tcp nominations is that you have to define a discrete boundary and for tcps at least on the tribal side those boundaries may not be real so you may have to kind of 
identify something that doesn't fit within your understanding, your view of how that landscape works. Yeah. But you have to put a boundary on it because the law says you have to. So um, a traditional cultural property has to have a discrete boundary. Um, a traditional cultural landscape does not, but it does. those don't get national register listings or anything yeah. like that. So it's interesting. I, I had heard about an example with um, some of the tribes in the Mojave that use songs um, to designate kind of their, their movement around the landscape. Mm -hmm. And so I can imagine how songs would play into uh, making it quite difficult to set a, you know, concrete boundary or a discrete boundary on the landscape you know, as, as the law says, like it has to have a, a boundary line. It's like, well, it's defined by a song and mm -hmm. it's like the, the song does describe features on the landscape, but where does that landscape end? Uh, yeah. So that's pretty tricky. It just seems like there's a, a lot of disconnects between the culture and the law. Yeah. The, the, the way that the national register and the laws are written were written with good intent, but not from a native view or perspective. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that the National Register was really, you'll hear our shippo say this all the time, it was meant to be an honorarium. And in the state of Oregon, we are a land use state. So it winds up not really being that way in the state yeah. of Oregon. <laughs> um, yeah. So it just makes it much, that much more complicated. Um, yeah, n I would say none of... I can't say of any law that has written uh, with an indigenous perspective appropriately. So, you know. Yeah. Shaking my head. No, nope. <laughs> nothing's recalled unless someone nope. wants to find one. Yeah. Um, that's all the questions I have. I, I feel like that was, I mean, a lot of information, very concise. Uh, that was, that's something I really admire about you, Cassie, is like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, when we talked about uh, what does a tipo do, like it, you, you let out a lot of info uh, that was laid out in a way that someone who has no idea what they're, they're dealing with can understand. Well, and I appreciate I, that. <laughs> I feel like that's the same case today is, uh, you know, what's a TCP? Uh, traditional cultural property could be Native American, could be not Native American. Um, and there's a lot going on yeah. with, you know, what it is, how it gets listed and what you can do with it. So, you know, the, like you, you said, the, the contributing factors and the non-contributing factors seems to be kind of at the heart of, you know, how it impacts, um, the local community where a TCP is. Yep. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. A lot of this is just, um, data dump. How much can you take in? <laughs> I'm still taking it in. Processing. 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 Yeah. Uh, you did mention that there were some things that you had thought about um, that, that could have been mentioned about um, what a TIPO does. Um, oh. Were there some other things that you wanted to, to add to that? 
Oh gosh, I'd have to go back and think about it. Yeah, I just I just remember listening to that and being <clears throat> saying, "Oh man, I do so much more than that." And I, I think I when I I think when we talked, I don't think I actually explained what Section 106 was in that first talk. I just went into, "Oh, we do Section 106 review," and and went on and um. But you know, uh, so I my position in particular, and every tipo is different. Um, my position, I am the Culture and Heritage Program Manager. So under me, and yay, I now have staff. This is new for me. Um, <laughs> I have a, a tribal cultural uh, specialist, so he's my technician, my assistant. I kind of call him a deputy tippo because he basically does everything I do, and it's nice. It's great. <clears throat> I, I, Todd, I love you. <laughs> Please don't ever leave. <laughs> um, he. So I also have we have a cultural anthropologist um, who helps with research and um, just a lot of that finding that that historic and and ethnographic data. Um, living knowledge kind of stuff. Um, we have, uh, as of last month, a cultural activities coordinator who is responsible for helping us um, schedule gathering activities and classes so that we can continue and maintain our living heritage. And we have a cultural activities assistant who does that as well. Um, every two weeks, we're in our Head Start department um, teaching culture to our Head Start kids. In March, we have a fourth grade program where every fourth grader in Coos County and a few in other counties come to our plank house. And we teach them about tribal culture and tribal sovereignty Wow! and, and living That's culture. Awesome. And um, it's it's a busy month. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so we do a lot of those outreach <clears throat> things. Um, you know, of course we do um, compliance with both federal agencies and local agencies. So in Oregon, we have goal five, which requires local land planning land managing agencies to um, take into account cultural resources on their land use efforts. So if somebody wants to build a house or build a, a commercial building or remove a dock, they have to go through this planning effort and coordinate with the tribes to see if there's any effect to cultural resources. And so we review all of these projects. Um, we attend government summits. We do trainings. Um, I'll be doing a, a talk in a couple of weeks to Oregon State University. Um, we also, of course, do NAGPRA. Um, and right now, we are putting the finishing touches on our Senate Bill 13 curriculum, which is really exciting. So Senate Bill 13 is a bill that got went through last year, I think it was, um, that says that we're going to do... Um, tribal education in the um, all public schools in Oregon at grades 4, 8, and 10. And so the state creates its own base curriculum, and each tribe gets to develop its own curriculum to supplement that, and it's going to go out to all the schools in the state. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That is a lot of work. <laughs> but it's all very important work that, you know, it, it touches the public and it advances, you know, advocacy and outreach and, and education uh, of very important things. And like you had mentioned, you encounter members of the public who are like, there are tribes out here. And it's like, well, there's there's a lot of work to do in that in that avenue. Yeah, there is. And, you know, it's funny because I and everybody that says I'm like, you you saw the casino, right? Yeah. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> It's just, okay. Uh, yeah. Fine. Do we do we see the same things right now? Or am I like, is this a mirage? Yeah. Like, you, you ever seen a casino? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we have a lot of, a lot of education. It's it's never ending, um, but it usually ends in in a positive outcome and <clears throat> and gets more people that if I can get information to one person, they can get information to one person, and it just 
yeah kind of cascades and like you mentioned uh earlier too community building is a big aspect of that you know like demonstrating that you're uh, a member of the community and that uh there are tribal members of that community too that are you know very active and and using important places that you know should be respected by other members of that community yeah and and we've had some success with that we we had a project that happened down um down in our area Mm -hmm. and um this one gentleman he he learned um that what he 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 didn't do the right thing um and and you know he he was educated by us and by others about it and so um come a couple of weeks later he calls me says well my neighbor says that they're going to do this and i really want them to call you can you come talk to them (laughs) and so he 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 called them and we went down and we had a chat and then the next thing you know their neighbors calling me and the people down the street and so now we're having this community kind of education system just because one one guy learned the right thing and yeah. so now the whole community is learning how to do the right thing and that's it's kind of exciting that's really cool i guess the last question i have about tcps is who can initiate a tcp listing like um you know we're we're crm archaeologists katie and i and and um you know we might be out doing an investigation um but that may not fall into our uh, maybe scope of work or our job role. Um, you know, like if, if there's an archeologist in the field who feels that, you know, maybe there's something going on, like who's the person who needs to be talked to, to Uh, make a TCP happen? That's a great question. It should be the community. Um, so the community who, um, who that TCP is for should be the ones to say, yes, it should go forward or not. Now you may be the person that does the documentation and, Uh and submits the actual form. But um, if you've identified or have been have learned of a TCP, um, you should not go just go say, oh, well, the tribes have a TCP here. I'm going to I'm going to file a paperwork uh-huh. because the, there may be a valid reason that the tribes have not done that. Yeah. And and you may only have a small piece of the information while they, you know, they're holding all of it and maybe you've submitted the TCP for the wrong reason or with the wrong details and or not withheld the right information and so you've done damage to that TCP in that community. Um, so it's it's important that um, TCPs be um, kind of pushed forward by that community for whom it's important that's really important that's awesome that is really important (laughs) (laughs) uh cassie thanks again for joining us and i'm looking forward to you uh coming back next time you're in portland yeah thanks for having me up yeah yeah thank you so much for coming yeah is tomorrow you know (laughs) you're still here a long drive tomorrow (laughs) what are we doing tomorrow I don't know. We haven't cast you over again. Yeah. I hear some podcasts that like record uh, multiple times a week. And, you know, one of the things that I really like about what we do with Go Dig a Hole is like we record it when it works for us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're all busy people. And as archaeologists, like, you know, like you just got to be flexible and like things change. It's really hard to plan ahead. And it's also just like unrealistic to expect, um, kind of like a standing meeting out of an archaeologist (laughs) unless it's a weekend but you know it's like don't mess with my weekends (laughs) yeah no kidding our time (laughs) yeah i need some me time katie needs some katie time (laughs) that's right that's right yeah 
Yeah, we'll be bringing in uh, Tia and Kirsten uh, here soon. Uh, you know, as things start calming down, as the summer starts to wind down and people start to come home from the field and all that. Thanks again for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoy what we're doing here, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. You can also keep up with us online at go dig a hole on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A friendly reminder that the views and opinions shared on the go dig a hole podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and don't reflect those of their employers. Feel free to send questions or ideas to Christopher at GoDigAHole.com or hit us up on social media at GoDigAHole. Special thanks to the band Invaders for letting us use their song Dig a Hole for our intro, outro, and bumper music. You can find Dig a Hole on the album of the same name, Dig a Hole, on bandcamp.com.